It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And then Paul, as was his custom, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. And Father, we just humbly ask again for the help and the assistance of your Holy Spirit as we continue now in our worship of you by opening the word of God. Lord, you know those things that might hinder or distract each and every one of us from hearing what the voice of your spirit would want to say to us personally. So Lord, we humbly ask in faith together, speak, Lord, your servants are listening. We believe that there are things that we need to hear from you. So speak to us each in personal and powerful ways through your spirit's ministry alone. And we ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. Now let me begin this morning with asking you a question. What place, honestly, does the word of God have in your personal life? What place of priority, what place of value, What place of perhaps, you know, uh, resource and utilizing the word of God in your personal life, what place does the word of God hold? This is a very, very important thing and really what can be a life-changing thing for every one of us, the place that we personally give to the word of God in our own lives. One thing is certainly true, there was a strong biblical basis to the ministry activities of Paul the Apostle, both as a pastor, a church planner, and a missionary as he traveled around. At the very root of everything that Paul did, the scripture was utilized above all else to help people spiritually. And this makes total sense. The Bible, what we call the scripture, is God's spirit-inspired written revelation of his will to us as humanity. Uh, It's God's word. That's what we call it. The word of God spoken to humanity to instruct us, to guide us, to reveal things to us, to correct us and to give direction to our lives in all matters, spiritual and moral. 
This is what the word of God does. This is why God's word was given to us so we might accurately understand who God is and what his will is in all matters. And particularly as that pertains to above all else, God's plan of saving mankind from their sinful condition through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why God has given to us his word. No wonder the word of God, therefore, is so useful and powerful in its influence and why it always brings a stirring change, whether it's received with a receptiveness or whether it's completely rejected and pushed aside and ignored. God's word always still has impact and influence. In today's text, we see the impact of God's word as it's shared now in two more cities, Thessalonica and Berea. Again, remember our backdrop. Paul on his second missionary journey has established a church plant with believers in the city of Philippi, but as was often the case, spiritual opposition arose and that forced Paul to leave the area of Philippi and as he's forced out of that area, that then leads to him now pioneering new works, new ministries, the next church plant that we see here in chapter 17, the church plant of Thessalonica, whereby we get our two New Testament letters, First and Second Thessalonians, that Paul writes to these believers in this church that gets established here. So look at me in verse one in our text. It begins by telling us now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, it says they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, one thing just as a side note here, notice again, Dr. Luke, who was this medical missionary traveling around with Paul the Apostle on his missions team, you notice at the end of chapter 16 and now in verse 17, Luke transitions, instead of saying we, he now says they. Uh, And so it seems to indicate that Luke perhaps stood behind, maybe even ministering in the area of Philippi, because he says when they passed through these areas, then they went over to Thessalonica. Luke's almost indicating during this time, I wasn't with them. Silas and Paul and the others, they went on, but I remained elsewhere. So again, we see this interesting change. But what we have here in verse one is almost sort of a travel log. But in this travel log, it describes to us the events that lead to the next church plant, the next church plant in the city of Thessalonica. But notice it says they first pass through to other locations before stopping and kind of settling in to minister in that next city where the church was planted. Verse one says, look at in the text, it says they passed through Amphipolis. That, that references about a 30 plus journey, if you would, westward from Philippi. And then it says they then also pass through as well Apollonia. That's another 30 plus miles west. So they pass through these two locations where then ultimately they end up in Thessalonica. But don't miss verse one there says they pass through these two other cities or territories. It seems to be implying to us pretty directly there's no mention in verse one of any ministry described in Apollonia, no mention of ministry done in Amphipolis. It just says they pass through those areas. So it appears no substantial ministry work 
or gospel preaching or effort to church plant happen in these particular territories, perhaps because they sensed the next work of God, the next church plant was not to be in those locations, but in a different location. So they just passed through. That is, they just kept moving on through this one territory and then they moved on. No doubt as they were seeking the Lord, moving around, they just sensed, hey, this isn't where the Spirit's directing us next. Again, Paul was planning churches as he was journeying around, but he passed through and he sensed, you know, I just sense we're supposed to pass on here. I don't think this is where we're supposed to settle in. And so they just kind of passed through and kept moving forward. Uh, And rather than try and force or make something happen, they remain sensitive to the Spirit's leading and direction. And if there's anything that Paul and Silas had learned, we've seen it in our prior chapters, was that it is always best to let the Holy Spirit determine where they were supposed to be and when they were supposed to be in what locations and what they were supposed to be doing because they had experienced before trying to do ministry in area and the Holy Spirit forbidding them and then trying to and so Paul had learned hey this works much better when we just yield to the Spirit and so rather than trying to make something happen where he was he just passed through being sensitive and submitted to the Spirit. And to me, this is great wisdom because, look, life comes in kind of seasons. It comes in stages and just like seasons, it's good to just embrace the season that you're in and, and not force that season to be something that it's not or or be over. Just embrace the season because life kind of comes in stages and seasons. And a lot of times I have found, and I'm sure you've discovered as well, that one part of the journey typically is what prepares us for the next part of the journey. And so sometimes, just like Paul and his team here, we kind of need to be willing, listen, to pass through some things in our lives. And we almost have to be willing to pass through certain things in order to then get to where the Lord wants us to be next. And so here they pass through two areas to ultimately get to the place where the Lord wanted them to be. I want to caution you, be careful of becoming impatient and just settling for what's convenient or just becoming impatient and therefore, well, this appears to work. Again, whether it's in a relationship with someone or whether it's some circumstance or some opportunity, let me encourage you, walk by faith, walk in the leading of the Holy Spirit And let the Spirit of God end up getting you to the next appointment when He wants you to be at the next appointment. And that may mean passing through a few things before you ultimately get where God wants you to be. And sometimes we need to have that willingness to be open to that kind of leading. So after passing through 60, 70 miles of walking on foot and journeying, which must not have been enjoyable, they pass through a good 60, 70 miles they then travel another 30 to 40 miles, verse 1 says, where then ultimately they came to Thessalonica. So up to 100 miles plus, they keep journeying until they get to where they're supposed to be. They now arrive in Thessalonica, it says, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, Thessalonica was the type of community and setting that Paul was accustomed to ministering in. Again, it says that Thessalonica was not only a place where there was a synagogue of the Jews, we'll talk about that more in a minute, but we know the city of Thessalonica was a major uh, major population area. 
It was a larger city. The population, we believe, was upwards to about 200,000 people at this time. It was the capital city of the province of Macedonia, and it was a significant commercial center where merchants and traders would pass through. So it was a large urban city, densely populated, lots of immoral activity, pagan practices. And this was kind of what Paul was accustomed to embracing and ministering in. And oftentimes, you watch Paul's method of ministry, a lot of times he seemed inclined to reach major population areas with the perception that if I can reach the major population area, establish a church and minister to people, then they'll go back to the smaller locations and they'll impact their smaller communities as they go out and live out their lives. We're also told in verse 1 that there was a synagogue of the Jews here, and that was typically, as we see, where Paul goes in and first would try and preach the gospel. Again, Paul being a Jewish rabbi, himself understanding how synagogue practices worked, knowing that people in the synagogue had a good basis of Old Testament understanding, he felt that that was an easy way to start with to help build the bridge and connect the dots to talk about Jesus as the Messiah and as the Savior. And typically, traveling rabbis would have opportunity to expound upon the scripture when they visited a synagogue. And Paul understood that. So as a rabbi, he would capitalize upon this. That's why verse 2 says, Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them. And for three Sabbaths, it says, or three Saturdays, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. So notice, here we're told by the Holy Spirit's record that Paul had very clearly a common practice, a, a common procedure or protocol, we might say, of how he conducted his particular ministry. It says there in verse 3, as was his custom. The idea is as was his habit. Paul had a custom or a habit in how he conducted his ministry with the end goal in mind. And I think this is important to take note of. There was a set pattern that Paul followed whenever he sought to conduct himself in the works of ministry. Was Paul someone who was led of the Spirit? Absolutely. Was Paul a spirit-filled, spirit-led you know, led man of God and minister? Most certainly. But he also was spiritually intentional about the patterns of how he would do things in ministry. He was sort of stubbornly intentional about, yes, I'm going to be led of the Spirit, but there are certain practices and spiritual routines that I keep to and that I always follow. And this is what we see Paul doing here, as was his custom, because he realized certain spiritual practices are important. They're essential. And we take note in these verses here, what was some of the practice, the custom, to way Paul ministered? Well, one thing's very evident in these verses here is one of his customs or regular practices was he always reasoned with people from the scriptures, he always reasoned with people from the scriptures during worship meetings. It says in verse 2 there that he went into the synagogue, that Jewish gathering place of worship, 
and on three different Sabbath days, that's a Saturday, the days that the synagogue worship would take place, why he was there in the city for three different Saturdays, he went into the synagogue and it says, during the worship gathering, he reasoned with the people, verse 3 says, from the scriptures. In other words, the basis, you might say, of the instruction and teaching of Paul was the scripture itself. It was the scripture itself. It was not Paul during his you know, free time and preparation, thinking about attending the opportunity where he was then going to speak to people, trying to come up with a really crafty message trying to you know, come up with something where he could have a few rhyming phrases that people go, wow, that was kind of neat. That was impressive there. It wasn't Paul trying to come up with, okay, what could I do for letter A? And then when I, how can I, you know, then the, how can I make something line up with C? It, 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 the, the main content of what Paul did in a worship meeting was he used the word of God, the scripture as the basis and the content of what he conveyed to people to try and help them. It wasn't him coming up with a crafty message and then just finding a few corresponding Bible verses to support some of his neat key ideas. That's not what Paul did. Actually using the scripture itself was the content to reason with people spiritually. That is, he was explaining to people what the Bible said. He was bringing forth the word of God, the spirit-inspired word, to demonstrate and reveal truth. He saw scripture as crucial to the worship experience. Again, it was Paul who wrote to Timothy, his protege in the ministry in 2 Timothy chapter 3, saying, and we know it, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That is the breath, the very life of God breathed into the word of God. And he says that it's the scripture, Timothy, that's profitable, valuable, beneficial. He says for doctrine, reproof, correction, training in righteousness so that the man of God can become complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. How can you improve upon that? with a slick speech. I mean, if people want to be entertained, they can watch television. I don't know how any person in a pulpit is going to compete nowadays with the internet and Netflix and Hulu and all the other stuff that's out there. I mean, how are you going to compete with that? But in the house of God, there's something different. There's the content of the living inspired word of God that teaches people doctrine about spiritual and eternal matters that beneficially reproves people when they're getting off track. And I do that quite a bit. I don't know about you. And that corrects us and brings us back into alignment and equips us so that we're thoroughly equipped for the good works that God has for us. And so Paul... He reasoned, it says, with them from the scriptures. And that term reason in verse 2 is a very interesting word because it's a, a term in the language that literally means to reason, to dialogue. In a conversational way, that's kind of the idea there, that in a discussional way, and again, it could be referring to a few things. It could just be referring to the way that Paul presented the word of God. That the way Paul presented the word of God, it was almost, it just kind of felt like he was just having a conversation with people. Didn't feel like he was, you know, screaming at them or indicting them or it just felt like hey this kind of just feels like you're just we're just kind of having a talk here and you're giving us some information and and so people were receptive and they're able to receive it could imply the fact that he reasoned with them as well that in a small synagogue setting he both instructed but at times he also maybe reasoned and dialogued in the sense that he had sort of question and answer 
and wanting people to reason out the truths of God, he would let people at times inquire and he would try and help answer people's questions and kind of reason things out using the scripture to help people exercise their reason mentally that God gave us a mind to see truths that are spiritual, that are important. Look, folks, it is reasonable to serve God. It's reasonable to believe the things that the Bible says. And Paul understood that. I'm going to reason with people from the scriptures. The word of God is really very reasonable if you take the time to kind of just reason it out and think through things and actually use the God-given mind and logic that God has given to us, Paul wanted people to understand how reasonable it really is to follow Jesus. How reasonable it is to let him forgive your sin and be the one who's the Lord over your life. So he spoke to people in a matter to give them reason to accept what Jesus offers, and I think ultimately to make people realize that Christianity is a very reasonable thing. It's very reasonable especially considering who we are and who God is and what he's done for us. So kindly in his great love for us. Isaiah chapter one, God says, come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Oh, your sins be like scarlet. I want to make them white as snow. Again, God wanting to reason with us. The truth of scripture is crucial to the process of helping people reason things out. That's why, listen, the proclamation of the scripture in the worship gathering of God's people is an essential custom to solid ministry because that's what people need living in a crazy world all week long to have that fed to them to reason things out in life another custom of Paul we see as well from verse 3 is that he also used the scripture to direct people towards Jesus he didn't just proclaim the scriptures alone. He purposely utilized the scripture to direct people toward Jesus Christ. It says there that Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures, verse 2, verse 3 goes on, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying in his point to people, this Jesus whom I'm preaching to you, Paul says, he's the one who's the Christ. Again, the terms there, explaining, means using biblical passage to help people understand. That's what explaining is, to help people understand more clearly. Oh, okay, I understand that now more. That's a little bit more clear. That word demonstrating is a term used in the original language which means to prove something by giving evidence. And this is what Paul would do. He would use the word of God to give solid evidence for people to reason out and to see things about Jesus. As he was using the scripture to explain and demonstrate, verse 3, it says that the Christ had to, that is the necessity of the Christ, to suffer and rise again from the dead. Again, the Christ is the Greek term, the Christos, of the Messiah for the Jewish people that they knew. This one whom God said he was going to send to his people as a deliverer. And in the Old Testament scriptures, again, which is what they were utilizing, the New Testament wasn't fully written at the time these things are going on. So Paul was utilizing the Old Testament scriptures, and the Old Testament scriptures portrayed the Messiah that God was going to send in really two different ways, as both a suffering servant and also a conquering, glorified, ruling king. And that was to portray the two different comings that would exist of the Messiah, of the Christ. 
that he would come and do both, that he would once come this way and he would once come that way. Now, because Israel in Jesus' day, understand, was under the bondage of Roman oppression, this is why, because of what they were dealing with, they longed so greatly to be liberated from the rulership of the Roman Empire. And their greatest longing, and which caused them to only be focused on the reality that the Messiah would be this conquering king, was just send us someone to liberate us from Rome. We just don't like being oppressed. Send us a deliverer. And so therefore, the only deliverer they were really interested in and could think about was a deliverer that would be a Messiah that would set them free, a military, political conqueror who would throw off Roman worship. So in their mind, they resolved that's what Messiah's got to be. When he comes, he's got to be a conquering king. This is why they stumbled with seeing Jesus when he came the first time because they were looking for a conquering, ruling dictator who would come again and, and just kind of exercise his strength and rulership to overthrow the Roman government. And so they kind of ignored the reality that Messiah could actually be a suffering servant. And because what they wanted was one thing, they weren't seeing the thing they actually needed. And boy, sometimes that happens to us too. Because we want and perceive in our minds so much, hey, you know, this is what I need, this is what I want. Sometimes we're then blind to what we really need, which may be something completely different. And so because of this, though Jesus will return again a second time in power and glory, we know Jesus first had to come as a humble servant to save us from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. And this is really what Paul was trying to explain in what verse 3 is referring to to the people about Jesus to prove that this Jesus of Nazareth who was a humble suffering servant who was crucified and died that Paul's saying this Jesus of Nazareth I'm preaching to you about he is the Christ he is the one who's the Messiah and he was using the Old Testament scripture to demonstrate that Paul was using Old Testament texts we're told here to explain and reveal and prove and demonstrate with evidence that this Jesus is the Christ. Makes me wonder, as verse 3 says that there, as trying to show that, hey, he had to suffer and then he had to rise from it again. What passages Paul used? There would have been plenty to choose from. From Genesis chapter 3 all the way through. In Genesis chapter 3, God told uh, Eve, after the fall of sin happened in the world, he said that, that of her seed... That, that, that one of her seed would crush the head of Satan, the serpent. Now listen, a woman doesn't produce seed. A woman produces an egg in the reproductive process. So when God said that the woman's seed would crush and destroy the power and the authority of Satan, God was inferring somehow a woman in a unique and miraculous way would bring forth the seed of a man. Already inferring a virgin birth, a miraculous birth would come and crush the power of Satan. As you go throughout the word of God, I mean, Micah chapter 5, describing how Jesus would be born in Bethlehem and Genesis chapter 22, the inferences, you know, to Abraham and Isaac, take your son, your only son, and take him up onto that mountain and sacrifice him. And it says that Isaac, the son, carried the wood. He carried the wood. And Abraham had to believe in faith. Okay, I'm going to put to death my own son, but God, if I do that, your promise is going to fail. So therefore, God, I believe that if I sacrifice my son, that you will have to raise him from the dead. And again, all these pictures throughout the word of God, 
whether in direct ways prophetically or in symbolic ways, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, all the different sacrifices and the offerings that happened, how those things spoke of Jesus, the Passover sacrifice, the sin offering. You come into the prophetic books, Isaiah 53, this very explicit passage of the suffering servant. Psalm 22 and Psalm 69 describing, again, details of a crucifixion and the suffering that somebody would go through to make atonement for sins. Psalm 16 describing how the Messiah would not only die, but he would never see corruption and that he would be raised from the dead. And all throughout the Old Testament scriptures, Paul, as he's speaking to the people, it says he's explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And he's saying, can't you see? And he's using the Old Testament to lead people to Christ. Many of us say, oh, I can't lead somebody to Christ. And we have the whole New Testament. Way clearer. And Paul from the Old Testament was showing people that Jesus had to suffer for sin and rise from the dead, saying, can't you see? Can't you see? And again, reminds us of what Jesus did. It tells us in Luke 24, the beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Jesus expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Listen, folks, please hear me this morning. A primary and foremost function of scripture even the Old Testament scripture is to reveal Jesus to us. Please, we don't, as much as I love teaching the word of God and I said Paul's primary and first custom was just reasoning from the scriptures, we don't alone just teach and take in the word of God just for biblical principles. This isn't Calvary Chapel Bible College. This is church. And the word of God, yes, it gives us biblical principles, but the primary function in using the word of God is that people have an experience with Jesus. They know Jesus better. They walk with Jesus. It's not just academia. Do you understand what I'm saying? And we have to be careful of that ourselves as lovers of the word of God. The Bible says knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. And Paul said, I want to bring people to a place where they meet Jesus. This Jesus, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to lead you into an experience with Jesus that you know him and accept his salvation and walk with him. And so Paul, one of his customs, as well as just giving the word of God, was also trying to guide people into an experience with Christ himself. So he spends those three Sabbaths reasoning from the scriptures. And as would be the case, there were different responses. And this is what we see in the next few verses. It says, and some of them were persuaded, not all, some, a great multitude of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And they joined Paul and Silas. So notice, not all, but some of the hearts of the people who heard the word of God and what Paul preached were receptive and put their faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord. They reasoned things out. They were persuaded, hey, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior. And it says there in verse four that among those who were persuaded were not just Jews alone, but also a great multitude of devoted God-fearing Greeks. These were those who were Gentiles who became involved in the synagogue worship system. They were God-fearers. They were truth-seekers. And they as well were persuaded. Again, the Bible tells us faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And so whether it was Jews in the synagogue with an Old Testament basis who had a real good foundation spiritually from their upbringing or whether it was Gentiles who had no religious basis to their background at all, when they heard the word of God, 
Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God and faith was stirred in their hearts and they chose to believe. In fact, it says, verse 4, they chose to join Paul and Silas. That's a reference to choosing to believe Jesus and joining Paul and Silas as followers of Jesus. That's what that's describing. So some embraced Jesus, but notice the contrast, verse 5. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace. Gathering a mob, they set all the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. So notice, some were persuaded, but the Holy Spirit is very honest, and he says, others were not persuaded. They did not want to believe. Now, this should be tremendous encouragement. Even when the great apostle Paul communicated scripture, not everybody was receptive. Some people were receptive and persuaded and believed the truth and exercised their faith. Others, it says, demonstrated that God has given to us a free will, which means we all have our own freedom to choose spiritually what we will do in response to the truths of God and who the Lord Jesus Christ is. We all, some believed, others didn't. That's why some in a family can choose to believe Jesus. And in the same family, you can have other people that say, not interested. I'm not into your Jesus thing. And people can exercise their free will to reject the light and to refuse the truth. And God allows us that choice. And here it says, others were not persuaded. Paul proclaimed the truth. Some hardened their hearts and would not believe. And sadly, when people were exposed to the light and rejected it, here's a common thing that happens. When you reject the light, you tend to then retract more and more into the darkness. And that's what happens. You see what verse 5 and on is going to tell us? It says that because they rejected Paul's message, they didn't just reject and say, I'm not interested. That's boring and walk away. They actually got really angry. I mean, see what verse 5 says? They didn't just choose not to be persuaded. It says they became envious, filled with anger, took some of the evil men from the marketplace. They then gathered a mob and set the whole city in an uproar, started a riot. And then they attacked the house of Jason, this new believer who was, it seems, lodging Silas and Paul. Verse 6 goes on to say, but when they did not find them there, they then dragged Jason and some of the brethren, the new believers, out to the ruler of the city saying, these who've turned the world upside down, they've now come here too. And Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So after they had taken security from Jason and the rest... They let them go. So look what happened. This angry mob goes to Jason's house. They can't find Paul and Silas. And they're so intent on doing what they can to stop all this thing. It says as they go into these new believers, they then drag Jason. Let's just say they encourage him. They drag him down to the city rulers. And they begin to indict these men because they're so offended at the ministry of God's word, trying to get Jason in trouble for harboring men. And the implication is like these guys are criminals. Hey, he's harboring criminals in his house. He's harboring people who are lawbreakers, kind of like he's trying to hide terrorists or something. And so they drag them down to the city rulers. And it says as well in the text here that they actually, after they had taken security from him, verse 9 says, then they let him go. The idea is they actually ultimately arrested the guy. They made him post bail. 
They made him pay up some security in bail bond before they then eventually let them go. And all for what reason? What were the accusations? Well, kind of interesting things what they were actually accused of. Two things particularly we see. The first one in verse 6, what was one of the first accusations of Paul and Silas for their ministry? Basically, that they were bringing powerful change to the patterns of the world. Do you see what it says there in verse 6? They said, these men who've turned the world upside down, more like they've turned it right side up, they've turned the world upside down and now they've come here to our city too. Again, what Paul and Silas were doing as they were being led of the Spirit and bringing God's word around, what an accusation. They're being accused of bringing tremendous change into society. That they were causing things to kind of be turned on their heads, shaking everything up, putting an end to people going one way and behaving one way and making everybody act different. And when you take something and turn it upside down, nothing stays the same, right? And this is what they're saying. These guys are going around and they're just changing everything in the community. People don't want to go to the bars anymore. Prostitutes aren't being able to get business anymore. Everybody's changing. They're turning the whole world upside down. People aren't cussing and fist fighting anymore. What are they doing? They're changing everything. They're causing the community to be different and, and they're just you know causing people to turn away from their idolatrous lives and they're turning to God now. And, and I look at what this powerful impact they're having and think with me if you would, what was at Paul and Silas's disposal to have that kind of a powerful impact in their ministry? Well, let's think about it. They loved Jesus. They spent time with Jesus. They wanted to honor the Lord. We know they had the word of God. We read about that here in the Bible. And they were being used and led and serving in the power of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And look at the impact they had. They were turning their known world upside down. Now, folks, let us take note of that because it's amazing today what we think and believe in regards to things that we think that we need to have and have to do if we're going to be effective in ministry. Look, there's nothing wrong with utilizing things, but I tell you from the authority of God's word, there's nothing wrong with using other things, but apparently a lot of things that we think in the modern generation that we need to be impactful in ministry and successful as a church, apparently maybe we really don't need them that much. We Nothing wrong with utilizing them. Look, I'm, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but I mean, this is... The third church that I've been a part of planning, and I can tell you this, here's what you need to plant a church. A Bible, and eventually a coffee pot. (laughs) You have a Bible, and you have the Holy Spirit leading what's happening, and soon after, buy yourself that coffee pot, you'll be all right. Again, Wonderful that we have such things at our disposal. I'm not saying we shouldn't be good stewards, but may the Lord help us in our impact in our world in similar ways to desire to want to turn our world outside and to pray. Lord, help us to turn our world 
upside down. Help us, Lord. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the word of God. Lord, help us to be useful in our world. And notice as well, the other accusation, they were encouraging devotion to Jesus as their ruler. That was the other accusation. These men are here, they say, verse 7, acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king and that's Jesus. That was the other bad accusation. Man, they're making people really devoted to Jesus. Can't believe they're doing that. Now understand, Caesar desire, Caesar worship was something that Caesar did desire. He wanted people to give allegiance to him as divine. And so it did contradict in some ways the decrees of culture and society to have such radical devotion to Jesus. But understand as well, though the scriptures and Jesus himself tell us we are to respect and support government, our ruler, the one we bow the knee to, the one we are to submit ourselves to and give our greatest allegiance to, is the king of kings, which is Jesus himself. And to be supremely committed to him. He is our king and who we're to submit ourselves to and be devoted to. And despite how the world treats us for doing that, and sometimes that, that, that causes a rub there. Sometimes if you're going to honor Jesus or you want to be devoted to the Lord, you're going to find that that may come into conflict with the rule of this world and the patterns of this world and the ways of this world. And so therefore you may find a clash there like they found in their day. But Jesus said we're to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and, and to be encouraged to remain devoted to him despite how our, in some ways, you know, peculiarity causes conflict in our lives. And so again, they didn't compromise. They were who they were. They encouraged supreme devotion to Jesus. But this again, as I said, caused an uproar and a riot to again establish in this city, the people of Thessalonica, this mob and riot starts. And so, of course, Paul's pushed out of the community once again. Look at verse 10. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So again, because of the conflict, they're kind of pushed out of town again. But because the ministry was based, listen, in the word of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit's ministry, guess what? A church was still established. And that work went on. Even though the workmen left the community, that work, because it was built on the right things, continued, and the church of Thessalonica ended up being established. The lens now shifts us over to Berea, again, 60 miles again, another southwest from Thessalonica. And verse 10 says, and when they then arrived in Berea, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Again, the same very common pattern that we have seen before, where Paul would go into the synagogue, start speaking the word of God. And look at this great compliment, verse 11. These were more fair-minded, that is the people of Berea, than those in Thessalonica, in that they receive the word of God with all readiness. And they search the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So take notice, the spirit of God in the word of God lays out a tremendous compliment there to these people of Berea. And what was the compliment the Holy Spirit endorses the people of Berea with their way of relating to Scripture. It says they were more fair-minded, your translation say, may say more noble-minded than the people in Thessalonica. The implication there simply is these people were commended for being more fair and proper in how they use their minds to think about the Scriptures. 
They were more noble in their approach. They took a higher approach that was more honorable towards Scripture. And what was that noble approach? Well, verse 11 tells us, first of all, that they received the word of God with all readiness. That is great eagerness. They were a people who were enthusiastic and eager to hear what Paul had to say from the scripture. They were actually excited to hear the word of God. There was an enthusiasm and an expectation to hear what the scriptures had to say. They were receptive And also, secondly, it says they searched the scriptures daily, every day, to find out whether what Paul said was true. So they were eagerly checking the Bible. They were they were saying, hey, let's see, is that really in there? And and so they were searching out the scriptures themselves. Wow, I wonder if there's other passages that talk about the Messiah. I wonder if there are other. And so they're searching out the Bible. They're taking initiative, digging deeper in God's word on a daily basis and also exercising cautious stewardship in verifying for themselves if what Paul said was actually accurate. They were diligent students. They were responsible in their spiritual stewardship. And look what that attitude results in. Verse 12 says, as a result of that attitude towards the Bible, many of them believed, again, and not a few of the Greeks, but also prominent women as well. Now, let me just say, no doubt in my mind, the reason why verse 11 exists there in our Bible and in the book of Acts is because God wants us to look at the great example of the Bereans and be encouraged, folks, towards the same. That's why that's there for us. That we would say, wow, if the Holy Spirit of God commended them for that, perhaps if they were commended, we should aspire towards the same thing so that we would have God's commendation and how we relate to the word of God. And again, how did they relate to the word of God that we might be like Bereans? Well, that we would be receptive towards God's word, that we would be people who are ready and have an enthusiastic heart about the Bible. Does that describe your heart this morning? Are you eager towards the Bible? Are you enthusiastic about learning the word of God, wanting to hear what God has to say, a spiritual fervor? Do you come into the house of God when you know God's word is going to be shared and communicated saying, Lord, I really want to hear something today. God, I want you to speak to me today with an eagerness and a receptivity. It says here that these believers received with readiness. Do you come ready when you come to the house of God? Do you ask the Lord to make you ready and not just endure a church service or endure a Bible study, but to actually be expectant when you come to a worship service, expectant in what God might say to you during a Bible study as well, that like the Bereans here in verse 11, we would search the scriptures daily on a daily basis, getting into the word of God seeing what it says for ourselves, spending time in God's word to learn what it would say to us about God. And daily they were searching the scriptures to understand more about the Lord and more about spiritual things. Can I ask you honestly, how daily is your time in the word of God for yourself? Are you daily getting into God's word for yourself or just once a week trying to survive off a Sunday sermon? Are you daily getting into God's word, searching it for yourself? And that we each would search it, not just daily, but search it responsibly like them. It says they were making sure what Paul the apostle said was true. It wasn't just that they were suspicious. It's just called they were being good stewards. 
These are spiritual eternal matters. So these believers became familiar with the word of God because they wanted to know what it said so they could discern whether something was from God or not. And they were lining up what somebody was teaching with what they knew the authoritative word of God said. Let me encourage you. I don't care who stands in a pulpit or what their title and popularity is. You make sure that what you're taught lines up with the word of God. You use good stewardship. God's given you that freedom and opportunity. Well, verse 13 and down continues with the conclusion. I'm not going to be lengthy here. Don't worry. There's not much to apply. But when the Jews from Thessalonica, some of you had a panic look in your eyes. He said, we're going to verse 15. When the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, guess what happened? They came <laughs> 60 miles away. And what did they do again? Stirred up the crowds. You know, Amazing. Some people, they want ministries where they draw in the crowds. When Paul drew crowds, it was a problem. <laughs> I mean, just things got messy. And immediately, it says, the brethren had to send Paul away to go out to the sea. But notice, Silas and Timothy remained there. And those who conducted Paul then brought him over to Athens. And we'll see his ministry in Athens begin next week. But talk about determination. Paul's enemies so despised his ministry in the word of God because the devil despises the ministry of the word of God. They travel 60 miles just to go start a riot in the next town he's trying to teach the Bible in to do what they can to squelch the whole process. And Paul, for safety's sake, is sent away. Silas and Timothy remain. And I admire Paul here because rather than strive to keep teaching there, he wisely submits to the encouragement to leave the area and he lets Silas and Timothy remain. Now that tells me something about Paul, that Paul understands that ultimately it is not about the man, it's about the ministry of the word of God. Because Paul said, you know what, hey, I can leave because Silas and the others, they can just keep doing the same thing because it's not about the man, it's about the ministry of God's word. And they can remain here and continue to keep ministering to the people. And Paul's now sent to Athens for his next step in ministry. Look, folks, whenever the devil tries to stomp out the ministry of God's word, all he does is cause sparks to fly in different directions and new fires take place. The devil never succeeds in that. And let me encourage you this morning. This passage reminds us of the great value and potential of God's word. Maybe today is a good opportunity to evaluate and consider for the week ahead Maybe you need to reevaluate what place does God's word have in your life for you personally and how you use it to impact others around you.